Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Have you ever had one of those uh, dreams where you, in the middle of your dream, find yourself unprepared for something? Like I, I had one of these a few, maybe it's like in your life, maybe it's like a job interview or something like that, but I, I remember I had one of these dreams several weeks ago where I had this dream that Pastor Chris, our senior pastor, asked me to speak at some event. I can't remember exactly what it was. And in my dream, I had forgotten that that was the case. And so I showed up at the event completely unprepared. And in my dream, I started to like freak out. Have you ever had this like that? I don't, maybe some of you had that like reoccurring nightmare. Like it just keeps coming up, right? But I was like, I was like wigged out in the moment. And I remember I literally woke up in the middle of the night in like one of those cold sweats. Like I was anxious. My body was like all shaky. I couldn't fall back asleep right now. It didn't even matter that it wasn't real. Like in my head, the fact that I wasn't prepared for something, even in my subconscious, just like made me break out in anxiety. We, we know what it's like to be unprepared for something, and, and we don't like it. Even when we're dreaming, we don't like it. We've been in the middle of one of Jesus' teachings over the last several weeks where he's preparing his followers for his return. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus gives his longest teaching to his disciples in preparing them for the future. In the first half, in most of chapter 24, he prepares them for the fall of Jerusalem and also gives lens to the end of all things. But in Matthew, about right around just a little bit before 25, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples and teach them about what it means to be prepared for his return. And what Jesus wants to remind us and what we've come back to in kind of the subtext of this series is that Jesus wants to remind us that what will happen tomorrow actually should influence how we live today. And we kicked off this section of teaching last week in this back half of the chapter, in, in chapter 24, verse 36. You can actually look at it with me because it kind of hangs over all of what we're going to study today. This is kind of the, the hinge point in Jesus' teaching in chapter 24 and 25. He says this, but concerning that day and hour, now, if you remember, we reminded ourselves last week what Jesus is referencing there is the return of the Messiah, that the, the prophets had foretold that the Messiah would come and that he would establish God's kingdom fully and finally, that he would judge evil, that he would defeat God's enemies, that he would rid the world of sin, and he would establish his kingdom and a new heaven and new earth. And what Jesus essentially is going to teach his disciples is that he comes to do part of that in his death and resurrection by bringing salvation to humanity, but he's going ultimately to return one day to finish the job, to bring it into completion. And so when he says that day or that hour, he's referencing his return, the moment when he arrives and comes to judge evil, to do away with sin, and to reestablish God's intention for creation for eternity. But Jesus says concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father 
only. And what Jesus reminds his disciples, and again, we looked at some of this last week, but it kind of feeds into where we're going to go today, is that because we don't know when Jesus is going to return, and because when he does, he is bringing judgment with him to deal with sin and evil, we need to be prepared for that moment. And so Jesus begins to then teach his disciples of what it means to be prepared. If you remember, we said last week, Jesus isn't as concerned with the when of his return. No one knows that. He's concerned with the what of his return and the how we are to live in light of what is ultimately to come. And so Jesus begins to prepare his disciples through one of his favorite forms of teaching, which is parables. And so last week, we looked at the first parable that Jesus gives in light of this knowledge that no one knows when the day of the Lord will come. And he shares about the wise and foolish servants. And if you remember last week, if you weren't here last week, you're just getting a little refresher, right? If you remember, our question that we asked ourselves last week is, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Well, Jesus is now going to move into a second parable. And again, it's about people who live wisely and people who live foolishly. And in many ways, he's going to ask the same question. Are you ready? Like, really? Are you ready for his return? And so what I want to do for our time this morning is I want to take a few minutes and unpack this second parable that Jesus gives. And then I want to kind of draw some implications or conclusions for us. So let's kind of jump in a little bit to the text together. As we do that, I just want to make one caveat. In the text, it uses the word virgins. I'm going to use in my teaching the word bridesmaids. One, because virgin just sounds odd in our kind of modern sensibility. Two, it's really that's what the reference is more towards. The word could mean either one. So I'm just going to use bridesmaids. I feel a little more comfortable with it. I don't know if you are, but as I use it, that's what I'm referencing in this section. So, Jesus begins in verse 1 to kind of set the table for the parable. Again, he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So again, Jesus is saying then. He's going back to that reference to the day and the hour of his return. Then, when that happens, then the kingdom will be like what? And here begins into the parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So Jesus sets the stage by introducing us to a couple groups of people. He introduces us first to ten bridesmaids that are preparing for a wedding. Now we're going to get to the wedding context in a second. And we're also introduced to the bridegroom. Now in looking at the five brides, there's a distinction between them. Five are called foolish because they don't have the oil necessary for their lamps, and five are called wise because they bring extra flasks of oil. Now, at this point, you're probably asking yourself, like I was, what does oil have to do with anything? And why does this matter between somebody being wise and foolish? Well, really, the context that Jesus is setting up is an ancient Jewish wedding. And ancient Jewish weddings are a little bit different than how we do weddings in our modern Western context. So let me help you understand a little bit what Jesus is talking about. In Jesus' day, when two people were going to get married, it often involved not just the two of them, but also their families. 
Sometimes their families would arrange their marriages. Sometimes they would come together and the family would give a blessing over their marriage. But what would happen in the process of a couple getting married is their families would come together and they would discuss the reality and terms of the wedding. That was known as the betrothal process. And in Jesus' day, it was very significant. It wasn't like our day where you get engaged right, and you put a ring on it, and then you just kind of wait to feel it out and make sure everything's good, and then get married, and then you sign the paper. No, in Jesus's day, when you were betrothed, it was that you were basically legally married, and then you were just waiting to kind of consummate that marriage. This is why when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant with Jesus, he kind of wigs out at first, because they're already betrothed. They're already legally married. So there's a severity to how marriage worked in that day. So what would happen is the families would come together in the town square. They would negotiate the things. They would make sure the couples would, would understand the covenant they were about to step into. And then the, couples would share, the couple would share in drinking a glass of wine together as a symbol of their commitment now to this relationship. It actually makes it really interesting how Jesus uses wine at the Last Supper. But I'll save that for another teaching another day. I'm just going to let that stir in your mind, right? But they would share in this cup together, where they were now legally together, and then they would go back to their families for a period of time, oftentimes up to a year, as they prepared to actually be brought together to form their new family. Now, what was happening in this time? Well, the bride was preparing with her family for her role as the wife, and the husband would go back to his parents' house and he would begin to either build an addition onto the house or a separate house in close proximity that him and his bride would live in together. And so he was preparing for their new life, for their new reality and what would happen. Now, once the house was complete, once it was ready for the bride to come and join him, the father of the groom would give his blessing, and it wasn't until the father gave his blessing that the groom would then return to the bride's family to gather his bride together, and then the wedding would begin. They would lead a processional, usually in the evening, from the, from the family's home of the bride to their new house. And often this was lit with lights and torches. Now, the reason they did it at night is if you've ever been in the Middle East, it's a little toasty in the day. And so they would do it early and often early in the evening when things had cooled down, which is why they had lights. And then they would go and consummate their marriage, and then they would celebrate, oftentimes up to seven days of feasting and celebration in the village because of the marriage of the bride and the groom. Now, it gets really interesting then when Jesus talks about his return that he makes a couple of comments. One, he says, no one knows the hour but the Father. Well, in Jewish wedding ceremony, no one knew when the bridegroom would return for the bride until the father gave his blessing. So that's an interesting point that Jesus makes. The second thing that you have to understand is that the bridesmaids played a very significant role. Part of their role was carrying the lamps, or what would also be known as torches. You could think of those kind of ideas, and oil in order to light the processional and the festivities that would kick off the wedding celebration. So when it talks about them not having oil, the right oil, the amount of oil, it's because it's referencing their role in the process of the Jewish wedding. So this is kind of the context. I know that was a long understanding, but it's a good thing for us to kind of get into the context and mindset. 
And so Jesus kind of sets this context, and then in verse 5, he introduces the tension in the story. The bridegroom is delayed. Now, we don't know why the bridegroom is delayed, but we know he's delayed. And because he's delayed, the bridesmaids fall asleep. It says in a minute that he shows up at midnight. I don't know about you, but I still have trouble sometimes staying up to midnight now, right? And so they naturally get a little tired, and they start to fall asleep. But then suddenly the groom arrives. In the middle of the night, he shows up. The delay's over. The bridegroom's here. Likely they would have blown a shofar, a loud trumpet, to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. And he comes to gather his bride. And the bridesmaids suddenly spring into action, right? Their role is here. They got to light these torches. They got to make sure they're ready so they can help lead the processional to begin and kick off the wedding festivities. But it's then that the foolish bridesmaids realize that they have a problem. They don't have enough oil. And oil is kind of key to how lamps worked back then. Kind of like your phone doesn't work if its battery's dead. If you don't have oil, you don't have a lamp. And so they realize, shoot, we don't have the oil necessary for the processional. So they naturally do what anyone do. They ask the people who do have enough oil, the wise bridesmaids, and they say, hey, will you share some of this with us? And essentially they're like, no, we can't do that. Now, you might be thinking, that seems kind of selfish. Like, you got some extra oil, can't you share it? But you have to remember, this is an honor-shame culture. And if your role is to essentially light the processional, and you don't have enough oil to light the processional, that not only brings shame upon you, it brings shame upon the bride and the groom, with entrusting you to the thing. And so the wise bridesmaids are actually still wise, because they recognize, if we give you some, we won't have enough to light the processional the way it needs to and we will bring shame upon the bride and groom. And so they say, you need to go into the market and get what you can and then come back and be part because the bridegroom is arriving. What happens next in the story is these women go off to buy, these five women go off to buy their thing, but then the bridegroom comes while they're gone and he's ready to celebrate, right? You know any groom on his wedding day is not waiting any longer than he has to to consummate that marriage. So he's ready to go and to enter into the joy of festivities, but these other five bridesmaids aren't there. Well, they're not taking time to wait. They're going right in. And so the bridegroom invites the other to join in the processional. They go and they enter into the time of feasting that would have been normal. And they shut the door. We're reminded in the story of the joy of inclusion. That when you're involved in the party, it's awesome. And if you've ever been to a great wedding, you know the joy that comes in a good wedding celebration and a great reception. There's a certain joy to that day that everyone gets to share together when a bride and groom ultimately come together. And in verse 10, we see that those that are ready are invited into the feast to celebrate But the foolish bridesmaids, they have a different response. The door shut and the ceremony begins, but they come back from trying to buy their oil. And they come to the door and they say in verse 11, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. While those that were prepared and wise get the joy of inclusion The foolish bridesmaids experience exclusion and rejection. Now you might be wondering, 
Again, that seems a little harsh, but in an honor and shame culture, it's not. These foolish bridesmaids would have brought shame upon the groom, shame upon the marriage ceremony, and so they're excluded from it. But what's interesting is, as Jesus kind of wraps up this parable, is that he kind of begins to leave the scene that he's painting and begin to make some connections with his disciples and the real world that they're in. One of the connections that Jesus makes is he makes a curious statement in verse 11. The other bridesmaids come and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now, that little phrase, Lord, Lord, is used one other time in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew wants you to connect the story that Jesus is saying here with an earlier teaching of Jesus that he gave on a different mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like a hyperlink in the text. You know how when you like surf the internet and you find like a link and you click on it and it takes you to another page? That's what biblical authors would often do. They would repeat certain phrases that's meant to draw your mind and connect you back to a previous section or a previous passage. What's that passage? Well, it's found in Matthew 7, verse 21. Towards the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus, the principle he gave there, he's now displaying in this story. Lord, Lord, they call to us. But he responds. Who's he in the story? Is it the bridegroom? Or is it Jesus? Because at some point he says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Which he again says in Matthew 7, verse 23. So Jesus is beginning to make his point clear in the story. He begins to take the story of a Jewish wedding and use it to influence and engage his disciples. And he brings the application point to the crescendo in verse 13 where he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Jesus' point is clear. We are to watch, to be prepared for his return. He's picking up the same instructions he gave us in the passage we looked at last week. Repeating the theme, but reinforcing it with greater emphasis again. Remember that in light of Jesus' return, you and I are to be ready for the arrival of the king and his kingdom. How are we to be ready? By being constantly vigilant in thought, in trust, in life, in action, in living the way of the kingdom now in preparation for the kingdom that will come. And so Jesus says, because you do not know when I come, you need to be prepared. True followers of Jesus will live in light of his coming by ordering their lives now for what is to come in the future in the fullness of his kingdom. And they are watchful, alert, and vigilant in preparation for his coming. And Jesus uses this parable to once again remind us, are you ready? And the point that I think Jesus wants to make is he wants to draw a distinction between those are truly his disciples and those who are not. 
And the big idea that I want us to think through a little bit today is that Jesus, for Jesus, true disciples make provisions to go the distance. True disciples of Jesus make provisions to go the distance. They prepare for what is to come by ordering and preparing their lives now, by doing what is necessary to prepare for the kingdom that will come for all eternity. And Jesus wants to remind them, if you genuinely believe in my return and you don't know the day and the hour of when it's to come, then you need to live in light of that by ordering your life now, by making my values and the values of the kingdom your values, by making my word the thing that you obey, by listening to my voice, not the voice of the world. If we truly believe that our king is coming back, then we will order our lives now so that when he does show up, because it's unexpected, we're prepared. True disciples make the kingdom their lifestyle here so they're ready for the lifestyle of the kingdom for eternity. I think of it like this. Several years ago, Uh, I was uh, an intern at a church, and part of my job as an intern is we hosted an extension of a seminary there, and so seminary professors would come in, and my job as an intern was to drive to the airport and pick up the professors on the weekends when they would come and bring them back to the church. It was about a 40-minute drive to the airport to get them. That sounds like an intern thing to do, doesn't it? Like, intern, go pick up the professor, because I'm certainly not. So this was my job, and from time to time, I'd have to go pick him up and drive him back. And so one day, there was a professor uh, that I was actually really excited to come uh, and, and get to ride in the car with. And, you know, you always kind of wanted to learn something they were about or strike up some conversation. And, and I had heard that he really liked running. And so uh, I got in into the car, and we started to drive back, and I started to ask him about running. And he gave me a 40-minute non-stop talk about running all the way back to the uh, hotel where he was staying. Now, I was a little disappointed because he was an expert on the book of Acts. So at one point, I got up the courage to say, like, hey, I know you just finished your commentary on Acts. Do you have any insight for me as, you know, a Bible nerd and student to kind of tell me? He gave me two sentences on Acts, 40 minutes on running, right? But he told me all about it. He loved running. He was obsessed with it. He, he, he ran all the time, and he, he was always prepared. He, he told me how he, uh, he always would buy two pairs of shoes every year. He knew exactly what running shoes he liked. He would always buy two pairs. Every six months, he would change out his shoes. He talked about his routine, how he would wake up daily, and he had a running partner, and they would go early in the morning to run. And he talked to me about the events that he competed in, and all this stuff, on and on. You could just tell the guy loved running. But then he told me an interesting story while we were in the car. He talked about a time where he was traveling over to Johannesburg, South Africa to give some lectures over there. As I said, he was a Bible scholar on the scriptures. And he was saying how after his long flight, he arrived in Johannesburg in the evening. And when he got to his hotel, he found out that there was a marathon in Johannesburg the very next day. And he thought, man, I just love to run that marathon. And he told me, I just decided I was going to do it. So I woke up that morning, I walked up, I registered on the spot, and I ran a marathon. And I thought, who on earth does that? <laughs> like, if tomorrow I decided I was going to wake up and run 26 miles, you would find me out somewhere on one of these roads, passed out dead in a ditch. 
but this guy just woke up and ran a marathon. How on earth can you do that? Well, he was prepared for the event because he had ordered his lifestyle around running. He trained. He ate what was necessary. He did what he needed to do so when the moment came, even though it was unexpected, he was able to compete and to finish. In many ways, I think that's what Jesus is trying to remind you and I. That there will be a moment when he will show up and his arrival will be unexpected. But will we be prepared? Have we made our lifestyle about his kingdom? Have we ordered our lives around his values? Are we living in line with what his word says? Because true disciples will make provisions to go the distance. They'll be prepared when the king arrives. And Jesus wants to challenge us again to say, are you ready for my return? Have you put your faith in me? And have you ordered your life around my kingdom? Now, there's a few things that I think we need to wrestle through in the text in light of, I think, what Jesus says. And I think in many ways what Jesus is challenging here is those of us who are part or claim to be part of his people. So if you're here this morning or if you're watching me online and and you never put your faith in Jesus, maybe you're kind of exploring what Christianity is about, my encouragement to you is explore the truth of Jesus. Explore the truth of the good news of his death for your sins, that he can cover your guilt and shame. Explore the reality and truth of his resurrection and that he really has risen from the dead, defeated Satan's sin and death, and is bringing his kingdom. Start with Jesus. But I think Jesus today has a few things that he wants to say to his people, to you and me, to challenge us, to say, are we ready for his return? Three things that I want us to wrestle with this morning. We'll go through them fairly quickly. The first thing I think we need to see in light of the parable that Jesus shares about his return is first that superficial discipleship proves insufficient. Superficial discipleship will prove insufficient in the light of the Lord's return. The reality in the text is that up until the point of the arrival of the bridegroom, the bridesmaids look like bridesmaids. They're all the same. They're all invited. They all show up. They get whatever ready they need to get ready. They're in the house waiting for the groom to arrive. They all fall asleep together. And if up until the point, the arrival of the bridegroom, you looked at that group of women, you would say like, yeah, those are bridesmaids. But then when the bridegroom shows up, some of them aren't prepared. You see, some of them didn't do the work to prepare. Some of them didn't live in light of the arrival of the bridegroom. They weren't ready when he came. They were unprepared for his return. And they don't even realize they have a problem until it's too late. And what does the bridegroom say to them? I never knew you. You see, the reality is, you and I, we can present ourselves as disciples of Jesus. We can go through the motions. We can do the things. We can show up on Sunday and sing. We can sit in life groups and try to love other people. We, we can even serve and still not know Jesus. In fact, 
you might operate in incredible power and still not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? When he says those haunting words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Man, if you met someone that was like, I cast out demons, I speak prophetic words and can tell the future. In fact, I, God uses me for the miraculous. You would be impressed. But you know what Jesus says to that person who doesn't know him and does those things? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And at some point, we have to wrestle with the fact and reality that you can look like you are a Christian and not be a Christian. The question you and I must wrestle is, do we know Jesus, not do we do all the right things? And does he know us? See, I've been a pastor long enough. I'm not that old, but I've been around the block long enough to know there are people who look the part, who act the part, who say the part, but when push comes to shove, they aren't genuine followers genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. And friends, we've seen that. I mean, we've literally seen it in the last year. We've shared this study before with you, but after the pandemic hit in March, after several months of trying to figure out and churches moving online and doing all the sorts of did, that things that people did, the Barna Group did a study on Christians and Christianity in America. And they did it towards the end of May and June of last year. And what they found in their study was that one-third of practicing Christians had stopped being part of a church altogether. A third. Not, not just showing up at church in the building. Don't hear me say that if you're watching online. What we're saying is they stopped everything. They weren't watching online. They weren't engaging a group. They weren't participating in helping, serving. Giving. They were out, done for. And what's sad is we have to face the reality that was true here. There is a third of our congregation in the last year that we have had zero contact with. They're gone. They were among us, as John said, but they weren't of us. So you can go through the motions. You can look like it. But when the challenge comes, when the king arrives, are you genuine or not? Do you have saving faith or not? Because listen, when the bridegroom comes, fire insurance faith will not be sufficient. If you think, oh, I said a prayer one day. I walked an aisle when I was a kid. I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was at camp. But I don't live at all in light of what he's doing. I don't order my life around his kingdom at all. Then at some point, Jesus wants to ask, are you prepared for when I show up? Because the king will come looking for fruit. And genuine faith produces fruit. Fire insurance faith is faith without fruit. It's faith without discipleship. 
It's faith without ordering our lives around the king. And what Jesus reminds us is that isn't what genuine faith looks like. I know it's challenging, but it's meant to be. Because insufficient discipleship will not prepare you for the Lord's return. The second thing that I think we need to be reminded of this today is that delays test us. Delays test us. What marks the tension in the story is the delay of the bridegroom. If he showed up when they expected him to show up, it would have worked out for them. But he doesn't. He doesn't come when they expect, and they're caught off guard. And too often in our discipleship, we can fall into the same trap. We want God to work on our timing, not his timing. And when the delay comes, when he doesn't show up when we think he will, when he doesn't come when we expect him to, that's when the challenge comes. That's when the test comes. That's when our faith is proved, whether it's genuine or not. And this is a challenge for us in our culture because we live in an instant results culture. That's what we crave. That's what we look for. I was reminded of that this week. I was working on a home project and my phone starting, it's a few years old and it's slowly starting to like decline slope. And so I needed this information to figure out this part of my dishwasher. And so I like pull out my phone and I'm trying to type it in. It's taking forever to load my browser on my phone and type it in and load the web page. And literally at one point, I think I said something like, I just want to throw this thing across the room. Because I had to wait 30 seconds, right? Like at the end of the day, I got the information that I need. But that's our mentality. If it works, it should be now. It should be instant. It should be on my timetable, my time. And too often we bring that into our spiritual lives and think, you work on my timetable, God. I prayed that prayer. I want that answer tomorrow. Actually, I wanted it yesterday. I want to see that fruit in my life and it's not coming. Well, then I must have missed it. Or the worst comes where challenge comes or persecution comes and we peace out. And what Jesus reminds us is delays test us. How we handle the challenges and delays of faith show where our trust truly lies. Finally, the last thing that we need to be reminded of this morning is that preparation can't be borrowed. Preparation can't be borrowed. In the moment of challenge, when the bridegroom arrives, the foolish women turn to the other bridesmaids and try to feed off their preparation. You were ready, so give me some of your oil so that I can be ready too. But what the text reminds us is when the bridegroom comes, you can't rely on someone else's preparation in that moment. You see, the reality is, friends, that when the Lord comes, and when he comes to judge, to find faith on the earth, you can't rely on the faith of others in that moment. You will have to stand before God and give an account for where your faith is and where your life is. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Only you can prepare. 
Only you will give an account for your life. You won't in that moment when the Lord returns be able to turn to someone else's faith. The question will be whether you know the Lord and whether he knows you. Just because my friend trains for a marathon doesn't mean I can go run a marathon. It's only when I prepare and train that I'm ready to persevere to the end. I remember a few uh, years ago, I, uh, I wasn't always the best college student. That's my true confession to you. So if you want proof, just ask my wife. She was there with me. And I remember one day walking into my Comparative Religions 2 class, and I sat down, and I got ready for class, and I was sitting there ready, and suddenly the professor goes, all right, put your books away. It's time for our test. And I remember the first thought that went through my head was, what test? Now, this one I actually knew about. It was on the syllabus, but I had completely forgotten. And in the moment, I realized, like, I am in trouble. I am not prepared for the exam that's about to come. And you know what the worst part about it was? If you've ever been in that situation where you've been caught off guard by a test or a pop quiz, you can't rely on anybody else. It's just you, and you have to give an account whether you know the information or not. When God comes to bring his final exam to look for faith, you will not be able to turn to someone else. You will not be able to say, well, God, my parents believed in you. They lived a great life for you. You won't be able to look at the Lord and say, my spouse loved you, Jesus. Man, she was all about you. That's all right, right? Like, my friends, my community loved you. We were about what you were about. And Jesus will look and say, but you weren't prepared. And in that moment, the most harrowing words that a person can hear in standing on the precipice of eternity is for the God of the universe to look you in the face and say, I never knew you. And what scares me more as a pastor than anything is that there were people who are listening to the sound of my voice who will hear that word because they did not prepare. Because God wants to know you. That's what the gospel's about, that he sent Jesus so he could know you. He dealt with your sin so you didn't have to be separated from him anymore. He died and rose again so you can experience the joy of his kingdom. It's why time and time again, Scripture portrays the future to come as a marriage feast. God has an eternity of joy for you, and he's done what is necessary. And all he asks of you is to have the faith, the genuine faith, to trust in him and let him do the work necessary in your heart to produce the fruit of his kingdom. True disciples will make provisions to go the distance. Have you prepared yourself? If not, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day. Don't wait for tomorrow. You don't know the day or the hour. Let today be the day where you say, I'm with Jesus. I want to know him and I want him to know me so I can experience the joy of eternity. When you do that, God is faithful to save 
He is faithful so that you one day can enter into his kingdom and he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. And my prayer for us is that's true for every single person in the sound of my voice. That one day you will stand before the creator of the universe and he will say, I know you. You're mine. Come with me. So God, I pray right now in this moment for each of us, In light of just the warning, God, my heart feels heavy. But I know that your desire is not to condemn. Jesus, you didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. You give this warning to encourage us to put our faith towards you, to produce the fruit of your kingdom, to order our lives around you as king. And so I pray for us today. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone in this room, everyone listening online, everyone who is hearing me. I pray, Lord. Would you help us to be true disciples? Would you help us to have faith that produces fruit? When we settle for superficial discipleship, would you convict us and call us back to yourself? Would you let us persevere to the end? So Spirit, prepare us. Do what is necessary. Call us to what is needed. Whether that is to put our faith in you for the first time, whether that is repenting from sin that we go to time and time again, whether that is ordering our lives and shifting our values, Spirit, call us to what is needed that we might persevere. Let us look forward to the day where we will enjoy eternity with you, I pray. I ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.